Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 48, Exaltation. Last time, Sterling and Patty Maine had just returned from their sabotage missions that were a part of a larger operation trying to help much-needed supplies get to Malta. Yet, having scored impressive victories, they then managed, due to ego, to almost lose their lives and that of others, trying to get back into enemy territory just after their successful attacks, knowing the enemy would be on alert status. They did manage to successfully lose a jeep that belonged to the LRDG. Back in Siwa, they all compared notes. Sterling's group managed to take out five planes and 30 aircraft engines, all boxed up nice and neat for him, and three repair hangars, an impressive night, whereas Patty's group destroyed several ammunition dumps. Not bad, but this caused him to urge Sterling to go back and see the results for themselves, which almost got them killed. Zernheld, one of the leaders of the Free French teams, took out 11 aircraft at the Berke airfield. The Free French forces were showing their mettle. The team led by Lord Jellicoe, son of the Admiral, and Free French officer Berg, managed to get to Crete and reduce the Axis arsenal there by 21 planes, 4 trucks, and a petrol dump. However, of Jellicoe, Berg, a Greek guide, and three French privates, only Jellicoe and the guide made it off Crete safely. One of the French soldiers killed, who gave his ages 18, was actually four years younger. All told, there were now 143 or so less Axis planes operating in the Mediterranean, which Sterling hoped was enough, and perhaps it was, because of these 17 ships sent to Malta, two made it. Yet those ships carried enough supplies for the beleaguered island to resist for another two months. Yet that bit of good news could not cloud the issue that the Allies were losing this war for North Africa. Having just got back to Siwa on June 21st, 1942, the SAS were told the British Army was falling back. But it got worse. Tobruk had fallen as well. As for the SAS's shipping out, they were getting ready. But they would not be going to the east, but south. Along with the LRDG, they operated in the sands, and so, in the sands, is where they would stay, far down in Cyrenaica, near Kufra. But getting back to Tobruk, war is not about ego. You always play the board. Yet it still stung that the last bastion of hope was now in Rommel's hands. Yet the truly bad news was that at Tobruk, thanks to the Royal Navy, the Italian fort was stuffed to the gills with supplies, of all kinds. Supplies Rommel would now use to keep pushing his way towards Alexandria. Just to give an idea, 30,000 men could live off what was left behind at Tobruk for three months. What's more, there was reported to be 10,000 cubic meters of petrol. Rommel's supply worries were over for the foreseeable future. As David's men headed south, he, as the commanding officer, went to Cairo to find out what exactly was going on and what he could do to help. Once he was there within the city, back at his brother's flat, he found out that Auchinleck was retreating to a place called El Alamein, and it was there he would set up a front 
stretching into the desert for some 35 miles to hold back the energetic German officer. Auchinleck told Sterling that, most assuredly, even with Tobruk's supplies, Rommel had to be overextended, which didn't change the fact that the British were fighting intensely just to slow the German-led advance down, to give them time to set up at El Alamein. What David focused on were all the officers around him burning thousands of pieces of paper to make sure Rommel did not get his hands on any sensitive information. Prudent, yes, but it certainly sent the wrong message. At that moment, David fully appreciated the fact that he and his could easily disappear into the desert, safe from this terrible war. But he was here to help. As was Berlin and London, to their side, after their own fashion. Hitler wrote to Mussolini, The goddess of battles visits warriors only once. He who does not grasp her at such a moment never reaches her again. Churchill countered this by telling Auchinleck, Everybody in uniform must fight exactly as they would if Kent or Sussex were invaded. No general evacuation, no plane for safety. Egypt must be held at all costs. By now, David had come into his own in assessing what his men could do for the war effort. So he let the busy CNC know that he would take his 100 or so trained men and hit the enemy's closest communications with everything they had, and if they came across a plane or two in their journeys, well, so much the better. David was soon one of tens of thousands running around Alexandria. Still, with his quiet manners, he managed to obtain two three-ton lorries and just over a dozen jeeps, newly arrived from America. When David first glimpsed these vehicles, he knew this is what he had always been looking for. Yet, thinking he needed to give his team as many options as possible, he had 12 of the jeeps mounted with Vickers K anti-machine guns. The RAF had moved on to more powerful weapons, but these could still do the job, when pointed at an enemy plane or men on the ground. Now that the SAS had some of their own transport, and the British Army seemed to be fighting for its life, David decided to switch things up. His men, all 100 or so, with more supplies than they ever had before, would stay out in the desert longer than they ever had before and constantly hit the enemy everywhere they could. But first they had to get to the enemy. But Sterling had an idea about that as well. As the front was 35 miles long, surely there had to be gaps, especially along its most southern end. So it was there that the SAS would pass through their own line and then that of the Axis. After that, they would travel about 100 miles west along the northern edge of the Katara Depression, then turn north, which would bring them to Mersima True. And in that general area, they would hit everything they could get to. By July 1st, 1942, the SAS was ready. So David once again met with Auchinleck. The CNC told Sterling their assault would be ready in the next few days and they hoped to push Rommel back at least 80 miles more if things went well. David replied that he would hit several airfields on the night of July 7th through the 8th, as well as cause general mayhem along the coast road, 
Hopefully, this would distract Rommel or make his retreat harder. Thus, more Axis forces would fall into Allied hands. By the time the raiding group reached the Katara Depression, Sterling realized he was taking way too many supplies. The overall weight was getting his trucks constantly stuck. Some material and men would have to stay behind. And those that did not go missed seeing one of the natural wonders of the world. The Guitar Depression, really a chasm, is about 140 miles long and about as half as wide and about a thousand feet deep. Many believe it was once an inland sea. After a few days along the Palm Leaf Trek, along the northern edge of the Depression, the convoy turned north. By now, they were well beyond their own line, well behind the enemy's line, and so saw no signs of life for days. Knowing that Auchinleck's Operation Exaltation, his push against Rommel, would be starting in a few days, David let his men in on the details of the attack, and they were to help out in every way possible, which meant that the majority of the major stops along the coast road from City Barani to El Daba, just in front of Alamein, would be targeted as the team broke up into six groups. As these airfields had recently been in Allied hands, the targets would be access property only, as in planes, trucks, and the like, not the structures that Auchinleck hoped soon his men would once again be using. The group broke apart at what would be their rendezvous point, some 60 miles into the desert. As David's group crept closer to Bagush, their target, they found themselves driving along the blackened and twisted tanks and vehicles of the 8th British Army as they had retreated to El Alamein. If the men of the SAS needed a reminder that this game was for keeps, they had it now. David took this opportunity to remind everyone that regardless of what happened, no matter who was attacked or killed, the mission would go on. Auchinleck was counting on them. As David and Patty approached Bagush, the Fuko Airdrome was only 18 miles away and itself targeted, they found the coast road. David warned everyone to be on alert, as intelligence had told him there would be a lot of traffic this night. And Sterling decided to use that. He would send Patty and some men to hit the airfield, while he and others set up a roadblock to ambush any retreating forces. This was filed under harassing the enemy, either running away or towards the battle. Patty and his team were sent on their way, while David and company waited for the first of hopefully many unlucky recipients of his attention. And he waited and waited and waited some more. Damn them at intelligence. Not one German vehicle came their way. Eventually, one of David's men spotted the flashes of light as Patty's bombs exploded. Well, at least something went right on this night. But as Patty and his emerged from the desert, the first thing David saw was Patty's face lined with a deep frown. The good news is that there were at least 40 planes on the airfield, but that someone had put the primers in the bombs too soon, and therefore some of them didn't work. Only 22 of the planted bombs went off. As for the remaining unscathed aircraft, they would be used in the morning 
to attack Commonwealth forces. In Patty's words, it was enough to break your heart. But Sterling, his own frustration rising, was ready with an idea. As they had eight Vickers guns mounted on their jeeps, why not drive onto the airfield and shoot up the planes? The Vickers were built as anti-aircraft guns. The night's work was set. Parking their getaway truck close to the coast road, the jeeps made for the opposite desert side of the airfield. They would drive pell-mell through the aerodrome, shooting up the planes, clear the airfield, jump into the truck if need be, and take off. The fact that there was no traffic tonight, obviously an order had gone out from Rommel, would now work to their advantage. The entire operation, once it got going, only took five minutes. Racing at breakneck speed, and at least 12 planes caught fire. But as they pulled away, Sterling could not believe the lack of pursuit. Now he wished they had driven slower and taken out more of the planes. As morning came, the Axes now had 34 less planes. But the ones they did retain were now in the air, searching for the saboteurs. Sterling's group knew this was coming, and so had spent the night making their escape. But they didn't go far enough. Soon, planes could be heard, if not quite seen over the distance. Looking around, Sterling spotted a rise about two miles away. Everything else was flat, open territory. They had no choice, turning towards the pimple, as it was called. Patty was in the lead, in a jeep. David in his own vehicle, about a half mile behind, while the largest truck was behind him. Yet, not all of the SAS property was about to make it to cover. Soon spotting them was one Ghibli that went after David and two CR-42s that went after the slower truck. Patty guessed he was safe, being the closest to the rocks and shrubs. As they all knew, this was not the time for speed, though instincts may suggest otherwise. No, it was a time of self-preservation. David and the truck behind him slammed on their brakes and ran away from their vehicles as fast as they could. For David, the news was good, if scary. The Ghibli used its relatively small amount of ammunition and its few bombs against his truck, but missed completely. And having nothing more with which to threaten, the small plane turned and headed for home. However, the two CR-42s dove at the third truck again and again until flames could be seen emerging from under the truck. David used this distraction by telling his companions to jump back into his truck, and then they dashed towards the pimple. It was a close thing, but the fighters, working together, managed to destroy David's mode of transportation. The Sierras waved their wings in victory and headed home. Yet, amazingly, no one was hurt. So, they all piled into Patty's Jeep and made for the rendezvous point. But that was after sharing some biscuits, chocolate, and whiskey, along with tales modestly told, and laughter at the joy of being alive. As this group was the first to get back, greeted by the men of the LRDG, they would all have to wait for days for the other groups to return. So, enjoyed the quiet and calm of the desert. As the next few days went by, the other parties returned to the group. Raiders of Free French 
led by General Jordan, had run into an Italian guard as security was tightened all over North Africa. Jordan bluffed the man, pointing a gun at him, by barking back in German. The Italian was unsure of himself, so checked with someone on the radio, while Jordan's men put bombs on eight Messerschmitt 109 Fs. The guard, finally getting his answer, raced out of the tent to challenge the group of strangely dressed men. Yet it was too late. They were making good their escape. The frustrated Italian soldier fired into the night. The same thing more or less happened to another group, led by Arthur Sharp. He only managed to take out six planes before the Italian guard shooting at Jordan's group alerted everyone else, which still did better than Bill Fraser's group, who didn't hit any targets that night, as they were still getting into place when all hell broke loose along the string of airfields of the coast road. The last group to return had been commanded by Lord Jellicoe and the French officer Zernheld. At first, they were going to make for the El Daba airfields, but at the last minute, intelligence radioed the SAS saying it was not currently being used. So they were reassigned to a section of the coast road to cause mayhem and confusion as the Germans retreated due to Operation Exaltation. They ended up only locating one truck of three newly arrived Germans, and that was because they went out and searched for them. HQ had been completely wrong about the retreating enemy and about much more. Still, the Green Africa Corps soldiers were taken prisoner. Now that they were all together again, it was time to plan another series of raids. But the next day, an Italian scout plane had found them. It was time to go. But not back to Alexandria, not back to the British line, not even back east. The SAS was here to wage war, and that's exactly what they were going to do. So they made for a new temporary headquarters by going west, the last direction the Axis would think to look for them. After heading away from Egypt, for another 25 miles or so, the SAS found an escarpment and, seeing the many places it offered to hide, had found their new home. That night, rum was passed around. The British soldiers sang songs for their French companions, who then returned the favor. After a few more bottles of alcohol were consumed, it was decided to let the Jerry prisoners have a crack at it. At first, they were not interested, but after a few swigs, they sang their hearts out, and everyone admitted they were the best of all three groups. A few more cupfuls soon found the 18-year-old German soldier pouring his heart out. He missed home and didn't want to be here. Then the detailed questions were gently tossed his way. Nine, El Dabna wasn't abandoned. In fact, it was Rommel's most important airbase in the area. It had never been abandoned. Upon hearing this, the party was over for Sterling. This gentle giant, just over six feet five inches tall, who rarely gave a command, rarely issued an order, or even raised his voice, but all the while just made suggestions while smoking his pipe, cursed British intelligence to the heavens. Rommel's main airbase had been within his grasp. Sterling's mood wasn't any better in the morning, so he shot off a wireless to Cairo. 
He wasn't much kinder with his words than he was the night before. He mentioned El Daba, and then asked where was this major German retreat that he was trying to trip up. How come the only intelligence he ever had was what he had gathered? Why couldn't Cairo see what he was trying to do, see how important it was, and take him seriously and give him what he needed? If his 100 or so men, not that they were ever out all at the same time, could wreak such havoc on the Axis air power, just imagine what the SAS could do with 500 all well-trained and equipped men. They could practically take the war to Rommel every night of the week. David decided that his superiors needed a demonstration, another demonstration. So he would hit the Axis forces like never before and earn Cairo's attention and then respect. To give the Middle East headquarters their due, the Germans were at El Alamein, just miles from Alexandria. Their attention, their entire waking thoughts, and many of their sleeping ones, was focused there. Ironically, the SAS, or rather Sterling, was getting the attention he believed he deserved from the Germans. German newspapers were soon writing about the Phantom Major that was making life hard for the brave German soldiers in North Africa. This British-led force was a bunch of desperados, not proper soldiers but it made for good copy. Sterling even made it into Rommel's diary, but there he had the rank of colonel. Sterling and his were also highly regarded by the Commonwealth forces of the Middle East. It seems that only in places that it really mattered did Sterling not shine. As a future leader of the LRDG put it, where we plotted, he pranced. Epilogue. Operation Exaltation was a failure. The details will be left for the main podcast, but in summation, Auchinleck was using one force to hold Rommel's attention in the front, while swinging another force around the British left, therefore the German right's flank, and attack in the rear, thereby causing confusion. Yet mistakes were made. Many mistakes. The British artillery was never amassed for effectiveness. The swinging attacking force did not contain tanks. They were being kept in front of Rommel, where his 88s could deal with them. The cooperation of the RAF was not adequately coordinated. Rommel had not planned to attack, and so wasn't losing anything by falling back and condensing his forces. The Great Push never got started. There was no long line of retreating Axis forces for Sterling to surprise. Sterling was the one to be surprised. Don't forget, everybody, to enter my dad's coin contest. <laughs>